I'd like to call Brother A.J. up uh, to lead us in the Lord's Prayer, the teaching on Christian prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Brother A.J., if you bring the word. If you would this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. The Old and New Testament readings this morning we had are a beautiful prelude to the text we'll be getting into today and what we'll be talking about. So I praise the Lord for that and the harmony of the scriptures. Matthew chapter 6, we'll be reading uh, verses 9 through 13. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our study today. O oh God, our Father, we turn to you this morning. We thank you for the blessing of the, your gathered people. We thank you for the means of grace that you've given to us. And we pray that you would bless us in our study of the means of grace of prayer that you've given for the edification of your people in looking to you as our Father. I pray you would be with us this morning, uh, bless our hearts, and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in review of our last ser- the last sermon, the message that, we, that I preached on Christian prayer, we looked at it as distinct from the world's view of prayer. We looked at it from the scriptures. We defined what Christian prayer is to the life of the believer. And not only that, but as vital in our participation of God's redemptive plan. And thirdly, we, ex- we were exhorted to examine the state of our spiritual life, to cultivate prayer as a means of grace for our perseverance and to the end. So as we come now to the beginning, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, we are looking to see the spiritual significance of this prayer, this statement. And we will come to understand the phrase, Our Father, as the means by which spiritual adoption was more fully revealed in the New Covenant. As we begin, let us learn what the scriptures teach regarding the fatherhood of God, just as we approach our study of Christian prayer, establishing what the scripture teaches in this regard. First, we must establish that Scripture teaches that all mankind in general are the sons of God by creation. They are the creaturely sons of God. Turn with me quickly to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. We just started in our Old Testament reading in the book of Genesis, so the context around, surrounding this passage will be familiar to all of us. From, this, from the revelation of God in this chapter, in this book, we know that God created mankind on the sixth day of creation and in His image, the crowning jewel of His creation. In this, in this narrative, the saying that He saves the best for last rings true. Specific, we're specifically taught that man is created in His express image and likeness. I've heard multiple different perspectives on what this means exactly, the different, looking at mankind as different from the rest of creation, different from the animals He created, and what that looks like. For example, uh, I've seen it articulated that we are God's ambassadors in the earth, or His stamp of approval of, in creation, as the, like a, the image of a king would be on a coin, giving His stamp of authority or even as vice-regents by which God spreads his authority throughout the earth. 
But if we come back to Genesis, looking at chapter 5, we'll be looking at Genesis, uh, the verses 1 through 3, we'll see that God gives us the best picture by which we understand mankind as made in the image of God. So look now at at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in his likeness, or in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day which they were created. So here, it's obvious that what God is proclaiming, the testimony of the rest of Genesis, the beginning of creation, that man is created in the likeness of God. But now look at verse 3. This should have some alarm bells going off and connections being made as to what we're talking about. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So what's going on here? Well, we see the picture of man being created the image of God related specifically to the way in which Seth was the son of Adam. So this is a clear picture that demonstrates that Adam was by his creation the son of God. By the further revelation of the new covenant, it's confirmed that not only is Adam the direct son of God, as mentioned in Luke 3, but also the general sonship of mankind is explicitly taught by Paul in Acts 17. He's arguing with the philosophers, and he references one of their own who says that we as the collective sons of God, and he uses that in his explanation, saying that, As we are all the sons of God, let us not worship God as one that is less than ourselves, but one that is higher indeed. So the testimony of the scriptures makes it clear that by creation, mankind in general are the sons of God. Now this understanding is vital to knowing the immense value of Jesus' teaching regarding the Lord's Prayer, specifically in telling us to address God as our Father. But why is this important? It's important because without this understanding, without this groundwork that we are all the sons of God in creation, we wouldn't understand our need for adoption. If I've just established the fact that we're sons of God by creation, why would we need to be adopted? Well, that's what we're about to look at. In the covenant of works given in the Garden of Eden, man's obedience came with the promise of eternal life. However, the, the punishment of man's disobedience was spiritual death. By obedience, Adam could either acknowledge and take part in the sonship he had with God by creation, but on the other hand, by disobedience, Adam could declare autonomy from his creator and flat out reject his sonship to God. As the scriptures and reality testify, Adam chose the latter. As the federal head of mankind, Adam's obedience not only declared that he was rebelling against God as his his father, but by extension passed on this rebellion to us as his children in the flesh. We are inborn with this rebellion against God, this hatred towards God, and no man is righteous, not even one. The consequence of breaking that covenant of works is the collective fallen sonship of mankind. This is where it's important to understand that, that yes, we were created as the sons of God, but we chose to rebel against that. And so with that rebellion came the consequences of rejecting God as our father. This leaves us guilty before God in our sin and justly condemned to hell forever. Now this is a rather disparaging picture, isn't it? Regarding man's relationship to God, this was the mindset of the old covenant saints. uh, Those under the old covenant, specifically. Everyone under the old covenant. 
The Jews in the visible covenant community of Israel had a particular standing as the called out nation of God in the world, but spiritually, there are only two categories of people, believers and unbelievers, elect, non-elect, saints, and sinners. These are the only two categories given of mankind. Now, with a proper understanding and approach to the covenant nation of Israel, we acknowledge that the people under that covenant were the non-elect, by and large. They were not the people of God spiritually. This is drawn out uh, repeatedly in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles. By and large, the people under that visible covenant community were condemned before God as these bastard sons in rebellion to their father. They were in constant, vehement rebellion And we see this mirrored by the nations as well, that spiritually they're in the same state as the covenant people of Israel. Their covenant standing had no sway whatsoever on their spiritual standing before God. And so thus they, along with any other unelect person or those unbelievers, are condemned before God in their sin. Such is the state of the unbeliever today. To those that are listening that don't believe in the Lord Jesus as their own Savior, God is a just God who will accomplish perfect justice and will execute proper, perfect judgment to those who have sinned against him. If you are left in the state of Adam and remain under the covenant of works, you will justly incur the eternal wrath of God for your sin. However, with this bleak backdrop, this is the black velvet by which we see the glory of the pure diamond of the gospel. This is what makes the gospel shine forth. We could look at it by itself in the light of day, and it would be just as glorious. But with this black backdrop, this velvet that makes the light shine all the more clearly from this diamond, we see the purity and the truth of the gospel. In the further revelation of the covenant of grace by the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles, we are given a great hope. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were bastard, rebelling sons, our Father by creation sent his only begotten Son, so that in adoption he becomes our Father by the second birth, by spiritual life in him, and adoption as spiritual sons. This is the testimony of the Scriptures. And not only that, but this is the privilege that we have as New Covenant believers. Even the saints of old who trusted in the promise of the Messiah hadn't the faintest idea that they were brothers and heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. They, they didn't understand that they were sons of the Almighty God, given the privileges and rights as heirs in his household. And all the while, they still loved him as a righteous king. And we can see this reality being put forth in a kingdom with a king that had a just, the king was just and righteous. And the citizens of that king truly appreciated what the king did. They appreciated his intercession for them between the nations that were hostile against them. And they gave their devotion to him and appreciated him. But we will come to see later on that relationship status changes with the revelation of the new covenant. We live so much in the reality of our sonship before God that we forget to take a step back and look, look at the context in which this phrase, our Father, was given. Just as was pointed out in the Old Testament reading, that yes, we dwell so much on the love of God, but we must remember to come back to all of the attributes of God, including the just nature of God as a judge, the perfect Father who demands justice from His sons, demands obedience. The disciples were raised under the system of the Old Covenant and only understood their standing before God as a legal one. And that's what can happen if we're, careful not, if we're not careful to 
put an emphasis on the adoption of sons. We can look at the redemption of Christ as the court of law, that we are justified by a man who came in as a substitute, took our punishment, and now we can go free. Yes, that's a beautiful, wonderful truth of the gospel, but let us never forget that it's more than that. And we can't let it just become a legal standing, a change of legal standing before God. This legal standing was one in which the Israelites appeased God's wrath by offering up sacrifices day by day, year by year, for every year of their lives. This was their hope at the time. They depended upon their sacrifices, their works to God, in order that they would, not, that they would be spared from the wrath of God. To entertain the fleeting thought that God would be to them an intimate, loving father would have been immediately banished from their minds, not only by the current revelation of God that they had under that old covenant, but by the witness of their own history. Looking at the nation of Israel historically, it's evident that God is zealous for proper worship to be offered only to him, and we see the consequences being brought out by their disobedience. The, the Israelites often were offered their worship to God in a cold and distant manner. After all, if you lived in a kingdom where the king was always off in some distant land and yet demanded his citizens to obey very particular laws and stipulations with strict consequences for disobedience, it would quickly cause bitterness in the hearts of those who didn't trust the king. This was the image that the Jews had of God. A distant king who imposed very strict laws was very meticulous in his uh, administration of those laws, like we saw as brief picture of a boss who was over meticulous uh, of his employees. This is how the Israelites saw God. Under the various law-based covenants throughout the ages, God revealed himself to be a powerful and a just God, and that he is. But he was one who was zealous for pure worship and brought punishment to those who disobeyed, and that he is. The Israelites were given clear demonstrations of his power and vengeance against sin that deterred them from even considering God as an intimate father. This would be the farthest thing from their mind. Why would I love this king as a father when he strictly imposes his rules on me and yet seems distant? Think of the Israelites' reaction to God's special presence on the Mount Sinai in thunder and fire and speaking to Moses. They didn't run to embrace him as a father. Quite the contrary, they, they cowered and hid before him. The ominous but before the ominous condemning voice of God Almighty. Look at the example of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offered strange fire to God. God didn't extend to them the loving hand of mercy as a father would his son. He was anything but comforting in that instance. He struck them down with fire. And again, the sons of Korah rose up in, in rebellion against Moses, their leader. What did God do in that instance? Did he show compassion and long-suffering as a father would to his wayward, erring child? No. The earth opened up and swallowed them, their families and those who supported them. And not only that, but those who offered wrong incense to the Lord in that rebellion, he burned up about 250 more of them. That's a far cry from the image of a loving father. For Israel, approaching God in a more intimate way would have gone against the grain of organized Judaism. It contradicted everything that the Jews knew and had been taught about their relationship to God. In fact, anything but reverent fear and honor to God would have been considered blasphemy and an abomination. But the glory and the fullness of the new covenant is that by grace, the Lord renews the hearts of men, bringing them from stone to flesh and enables them to be willing to love and serve God as their father. Instead of being a slave to sin and wickedness, we are freed from sin to serve the Lord 
in righteousness. We see this established by Jesus in his interaction with the Jews. In John 8, 34-36, he says, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin, and the sin and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the Son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The servants are those enslaved to sin, and they will take their part in the judgment against their sin by God for their rebellion, but freedom comes by adoption as sons. This theme is prominent throughout the scriptures. Turn with me to Galatians 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. But he is under tutors and governors under, until the time appointed of the father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. So we see this picture of being in bondage to sin, the law being our, slave ma- or our schoolmaster in that time. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, just as we are, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And what a glorious truth that is for the sons of God in Christ. We have been freed from the reign and the bondage of sin and being brought to freedom in Christ by which we can lovingly, willingly serve Him and obey Him. We've been freed from this bondage that the Israelites knew intimately. They were, their whole experience would have been consumed by this bondage to the law by which they would try to appease God for their sin. But we've been given the blessings and the privileges of sons, namely eternal and eternal inheritance, which is eternal life. However, for those who are yet under the bondage of sin and a slave to it, they are still guilty before God. The wrath of God still abides on you for your sin and rebellion against Him, your hatred against God and as Him, or against Him as your Father. Paul draws a clear line of contrast between those who are under bondage still and those who are freed in Christ. Um, yeah. Paul is describing the typology, the analogy that was in Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. God promised Abraham that Isaac would be born to Sarah, his wife, and of his, the son of his own flesh, and also called the child of promise. In contrast, Hagar bore Ishmael, who was the child of bondage, the Hagar who was his bondservant. In utilizing this analogy, Paul teaches the distinction between believers as partakers in the new covenant, this freedom in Christ, to those who are unbelievers, the unelect, those who are in bondage to sin, uh, sons of the bondwoman. He states this in Galatians 4, verse 30. Just flip over a page if you're still there. Verse 30. He articulates the result of this. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. 
So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwomen, but of the free. And so he's articulating this very clearly, that those who are still in bondage to sin will indeed be cast out of the family of God. Only those who are free, the sons of the free woman, will be held to as sons. The, uh, the law of Moses, such as kept the Israelites in bondage, will not gain you the status of a son in the family of God. This, was the, this is over and over again articulated as the schoolmaster, the, the condemning law, the one by which we acknowledge that we are servants to sin and in need of a Savior, a mediator before God, for His judgment will come down on those who are in bondage to that law in transgression of sin and guilty before God. Good works won't save you. They will earn you a place in the family of God as an heir, earning the eternal inheritance of eternal life. We saw this in James looking in the New Testament, even the physical son of Jesus, I mean brother of Jesus, at that, the physical brother of Jesus had no part in the family of God spiritually unless he turned to Christ in faith. Only by the gracious adoption offered by the Lord will save you from the coming judgment that you deserve as a wayward, rebellious son against God your Father. This adoption is only attained by willful, humble acknowledgement that you are indeed in bondage to sin. And without divine intervention, you will suffer along with the Israelites under eternal condemnation in hell. May today be the day of your adoption. May you come to the Lord in humility, acknowledge your need of a Savior, your sin before God that condemns you. May today be the day that you can truly call God your Father, not your condemning judge. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved from this condemnation. But for believers, those who trust in Him, those who are adopted as the sons of God, adoption isn't the final step. We looked at this in the teaching of James, what an applicable uh, prelude to this. God calls all His children to abide by His rules as sons in His household. The constant command from Scripture is to walk in the Spirit, follow peace with all men in holiness, mortify the deeds of the body, walk circumspectly, and overcome evil with good. Over and over again, the Scriptures teach that we are not saved just to be immoral, to do what our own will would have us in our own sin, but to strive to be conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, the scriptures teach clearly that sanctification is the mark, the evidence of salvation in a person's life. John Fawcett, a particular Baptist from the late 18th century, puts it this way. He who is our Redeemer is also also our Lord and Governor. If we have a sincere attachment to Him, we shall be subject to His authority and take care to please Him. And so now, under this new covenant standing as sons of God, it is the love of Him as our Father that drives us to obedience, to submit to His authority, to do the things that He calls us to do. It is not the condemning judge that by which we, under under which we stand, in order to gain salvation, in order to serve the Lord. It's not that fear of condemnation that works good works come into Christ. It is the love that we have for our Savior in His adoption of us as sons that drives us to this. Romans 8.13 clearly demonstrates this and even connects sanctification to our status as adopted sons in the New Covenant. 
For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. If ye live under the old covenant, ye will die in your sins and be under the condemnation and the wrath of God forever. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And that is the encompassing language of sanctification. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Under the new covenant, you have not received the same spirit of bondage that the Israelites had under the old covenant, uh, that unbelievers have in their status before God. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. This is the distinction. This is the vital distinction between the old and the new covenant. Those who are unbelievers and those who are believers. Those who are elect and non-elect. Again in Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through 9. Adoption is utilized for the pushing on of the the motivation towards sanctification. When ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. So he's saying under this old nature, this nature in bondage to the law, you served those who were not gods. And But now, after, the, after ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? So when we've been freed from this bondage to sin, we've, when we've been freed from the law of the old covenant, the law by which God imposed his law to show the, belie- the unbeliever that they're in need of a Savior, that they can't earn their own way to Christ. <clears throat> why would, when we're freed from that, why would we ever return back? Why would, we always, why would we ever put the chains back on ourselves and sit in the dungeon cell and then again plead for deliverance? That's not how this works. When we've been freed from the law, when we've been freed from sin, Our motivation then is to serve the Lord in righteousness, being freed from that sin. And so why would we ever go back? It's simple. When we were dead in sin, we were servants to wickedness and unrighteousness. However, being made alive and adopted as sons and heirs to eternal life, the law is made a standard of righteousness, not as a burden, but as a joy in serving our Savior, because we are enabled to walk in the light by the power of the Spirit. In looking to apply this doctrine of our spiritual adoption, I turn again to John Fawcett. He has a good quote in this book he wrote called the Precious, or about the preciousness of Christ to those who believe. Essentially putting forth a premise that if Christ is truly precious to those adopted sons of God, they will exhibit characteristics expressive of a true son of God as a son would to a father. Fawcett takes a biblical approach to sanctification of the Christian, diligently avoiding the distasteful odor of antinomianism on one side, that there's no remaining law for the believer, or legalism on the other side, which says that obedience to the law is what gains you this righteousness, this privilege, this sonship to God. For application, though, I went to... For application, I want to look at one of the key aspects of experiential sonship that should be evident in the life of the believer. I'll be looking at Fawcett's book, Christ Precious to Those Who Believe, and we'll look at the quote later. I think I missed it in that section, but anyway. Quote, If Christ is truly precious to us, we shall sincerely desire His presence and long to enjoy intimate communion with Him. And this is an applicable 
observation in our study of prayer. This is why we seek prayer, because we love Him. We want to be with Him. We want to spend time with Him. We want to know Him. And so this is why we come to the Lord in prayer. Human relationships are built on time spent with one another. And communication is central. As we looked at in the previous message, that I drew out the fact that a husband would be rightly concerned if communication with his wife is impaired in any way, and vice versa with the wife. And again, without communication, people become distant and cold towards one another, drifting apart and falling apart. This is the reality of our spiritual lives as well. Let us never take this lightly. For when we slack off in our communication with God, and hear, whether in hearing from Him by the Word of God, or in talking to Him by prayer, one of these two ways of communication, we become cold and distant to God our Father. We start to let our guard down in the fight. We start, which leaves us vulnerable to the wiles of the devil. We start to avoid the means of grace, avoid his word, avoid prayer, avoid the gathering of the saints, because we're growing distant and apart from God our Father and leaving us open to the snare of the devil. God has not left us without warning in this regard. In the letter written to the church at Laodicea, given in Revelation 3, the Lord says this, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Not a comforting passage, to say the least. But God has not left us either without the means by which we inflame our hearts in devotion to Him. Prayer to our personal Father is one of those primary means by which we cultivate our love for Him, which gives us a zeal to desire to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, to spend time communing with Him as our Father and serving Him in righteousness. In diligently utilizing prayer as a means of grace, we will indeed draw nearer to our Savior, thereby stroking, stoking the dying embers of love for Him and fanning it into the roaring flames of sanctification, which will purge sin and, and wickedness from our vision, leaving our gaze fixed only on the Father of all mercy and grace. So not only does the Lord use the means of grace of prayer to strengthen us in the perseverance to the end, but that's the same means by which He purges our sin from us in sanctification. When we are inflamed with the love of Christ, the analogy could be made that it's the same as when the fires of purging metal are burning away the dross that comes to the top. This fire of love that we have for the Lord will purge away our iniquities, our sins against Him, our temptations, our desires will be focused on the Lord. So back to the quote by John Fawcett. He beautifully articulates Christ as a singular desire of those to whom Christ is precious. Quote, When the eyes of men are opened to see their sin their danger by it, and the insufficiency of their own works to justify and save themselves. When they see the reality of the gospel, when they see the reality of their sin in their lives, when they see their own bondage to the law, no object is so desirable to them as the Lord Jesus Christ. The riches, the honors, the pleasures of the world are but vanity and emptiness to them in comparison with Christ. He is therefore said to be the desire of all nations, because men in all nations under heaven, who are made sensible of their need of him, 
uniformly desire acquaintance with him and a saving interest in him above all else. Is Christ that precious to us? Let that be the reality of our hearts that we express our desire for the Lord in this way, that we seek him above all else, that he is the pinpoint of our vision, that our, fo- our vision is focused only on him. Let us not get distracted by the sins, the cares of the world, the riches, the temptations to fame or honor in the world. Let us focus in on Christ. Is he so beloved to us that we vehemently abhor our sin in contrast to him? Let that be our focus. Let that be our desire in honoring the Lord. As we seek to diligently draw near to the Lord, we can look to the scriptures that give us the words to say, give us the expression of our hearts when we truly desire to follow the Lord, to love the Lord, to seek Him in all things. Let us pray that He would enable us to hold fast to Him as a Shulamite woman in the Song of Solomon sought and held fast for her beloved. By night on my bed I sought Him whom my soul loveth. I sought Him, but I found Him not. I will rise now and go to the city in the streets and in the broadways. I will seek Him whom my soul loveth. I sought Him, but I found Him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loveth? So we see the diligence of this woman trying to find her beloved. And, of course, if you look back at all the old preachers, they understand this to be the church in Christ, the relationship of Christ to his church, by which we have expression of that love to Christ. And so we see here, this would be the part of the church, looking, desiring the Savior, looking and finding Him not. But what happens when she does find Him? It was but a little while that I passed from them, but I found Him whom my soul loveth. I held Him and would not let Him go. So I pray the Lord would use this desire to Him, make the reality of His love toward us the motivating factor by which we in turn love him for we love Christ not because we love him out of our own hearts but because he loved us first and we see this over and over again in the testimony of the scriptures may that love of God our father and his love toward you be what drives him to serve drives you to serve him may the torturous work of our older brother on the cross fill you with love and gratitude for the grace of God in making us heirs of eternal life co-heirs with Christ and brothers with our savior May our hearts grow, glow in the heat of our love to God and his merciful adoption for us as sons. This is the relationship we have revealed to us to take part in in the new covenant. This was something that was missing in the old covenant. It was not revealed as of yet, but is further revealed in the new covenant. And we see the inkling of this in the Lord's Prayer as our Father being by which we address God. And of course, it's further... Uh, explained, expounded upon by the apostles. We see a lot on that by Paul in Galatians like we looked at. We see a lot in Romans. We see it all over the place in the New Testament. But the, the pinnacle of the purpose for this demonstration that we are to approach God as our Father is the contrast we see in the Old Covenant. That this was the benefit to us. It's not specifically to God that is benefited by our approaching him as father, but it is the benefit of us as a means of grace. For even the Old Testament saints were able to draw near to God as their loving God and honorable king and righteous Lord 
And we do so in the same way, but we have an added layer of revelation by which to inflame our hearts in love for God. Let us plead with him to draw us nearer to himself in his word and by prayer and the other means of grace. Let us call out to him in humility and repentance for our hard hearts against him as our father. For we often, draw, drew, we often become cold against God our father. Let us not remain in that state. Let us come and draw near to him as our father. In conclusion, this blessed perspective of the fatherhood of God was not granted to those under the covenant nation of Israel. They had not the true heart of adoption and thus were prohibited from partaking of the blessings and privileges that God granted only to his spiritual children. The visible covenant community couldn't grant the rights of sons and heirs to anyone. Only true faith in Christ is sufficient. This is why Jesus gave the simple phrase, Our Father, as a preface to the Lord's Prayer. It's a new reality for the people of God in the New Covenant, a reality which we proclaim every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. We say it every Sunday. Let it never become a stagnant ritual. Let it never be a set of phrases that we mindlessly say. But let it be the means of grace that it was intended. Let us cultivate our relationship to God, our Father, stirring up our love for Him, and enabling us to persevere unto the end with the assurance that our hardest trials, our hardest battles against sin, with, in our, dealing with sin in our own hearts, trying to rid it with all of our being, let us never forget we are the particularly loved and kept sons of God and will never be rejected by our Father. I don't know about you, but I surely will never think about the Lord's Prayer the same again. Let's pray. O God, our Father, we come to you after seeing your truth revealed through your new covenant, through the Lord Jesus Christ, of our sonship before you. We pray that you would make this a reality in our lives, help us to understand how it applies, and helps us to persevere unto the end. I pray you would be glorified in this, Lord, edify your people, and draw us closer to you in these things. In the name of Jesus, our mediator, we pray. Amen.